we will be continuing in our series uh, looking at the lives of Elijah and Elisha. All right, so now uh, just a recap. So these are prophets uh, who are mostly speaking to uh, the nation of Israel in the time of its kings. And we just left off with Elijah's condemnation of King Ahab, uh, this, this king who had aligned himself uh, through his marriage with idolatry, and he'd abused his power and been rebuked for it. But we saw last week that that judgment, the judgment against Ahab, because he had repented, was deferred to his son. All right, now we're not looking at everything in Kings. Uh, we are just looking at Elijah and Elisha. And so uh, just some backstory before we move on. Uh, Ahab, Ahab has died. Another prophet warned him not to head into battle, but Ahab uh, refused to heed that warning and he perished on the battlefield. And so now we, we reconvene with a new king, the son of Jezebel and Ahab, King Ahaziah, this son who is under the curse of his father and who is bearing his judgment. So we're going to see, okay, what, what happens? What happens to this new king? How does new, the new king Ahaziah respond uh, to the Lord? How does he interact with idolatry? And how does he interact with Elijah the prophet? All right, we're going to see uh, first... The curse of idolatry. We're going to see this attempt by Ahaziah to escape. Escape that judgment. Uh, And finally, we're going to see this this odd picture of the gospel. uh, Not from King Ahaziah, but from another. So, all of this, all this is to call us to see, to see our idolatry and to respond with humility and repentance to it to receive the man of God who comes to convict us and to offer us mercy for our idolatry. So let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you. For your word, we thank you. Lord, for the ways you open eyes and ears and hearts to see sin and idolatry and to respond uh, to the great mercy that you provide in Christ. Lord, we ask that you might convict us and and free us from the chains of idolatry in which we are all to one degree or another bound. Father, would you replace our idolatry with a great love for Jesus Christ? Father, would you use your word? Holy Spirit, would uh, would you not let it return void, but would it accomplish the work that you have, salvation and grace and conviction and and the glory of Christ in the gospel, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to look, begin by looking at Ahaziah's idolatry and the curse he receives. All right, so here is how the book of Kings uh, introduces Ahaziah. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord. 
the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. Right? So, this child of idolatry, he looks exactly like his parents. He's continued in the same idolatry for which his, uh, his father and his mother were judged. And so, as, and we, last week that question came up, is, is it unjust that God should, should bring punishment against the son? And it's, we see there's, there's no lack of justice here, that the idolatry continues and that therefore God is right to hold him accountable. And we continue. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. That'll come later. We're not going to talk about that today. All right. Just, just some context, because you're all worried about Moab. All right. Uh, now, Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. And the messengers returned to the king and said to them, Why have you returned? They said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, it is, because there, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed in which you have gone up. You shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist and he said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. Now, we have this idol worshiper, and where does his idolatry show up? As soon as he is weak, as soon as he is in need, as soon as uh, fear and desperation comes upon him, after this life-threatening fall, he goes to his idol, Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. All right. Now, let's break that down a little bit. So Ekron. Ekron. There's, uh, there's one other place in Scripture where we see this place uh, primarily. Ekron. It goes all the way back to King David. And the time when the last, this is a, when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen and brought to the Philistines. For a time, that Ark, this symbol of the presence of God, it resided in Ekron. And what's, what was the presence of God? How was it received in this city? It was a curse. 1 Samuel 5.11. This is the people of Ekron. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. All right. So the gods of Ekron, they have been tested already. 
They have been tested actually in this very same arena in the area of, of illness and who has strength to make well and to make sick, who has strength to heal or to destroy. And what was the, what was the end of this battle? The gods of Ekron, they failed. And the God of Israel was so powerful, was so evident that the people cried out like, please deliver us, free us from the presence of this God who has power over sickness and death, blessing and healing. Now of all the places to go, King Ahaziah goes to the God of Ekron in his sickness Wondering if he will live. All right, surely he knows the story. Surely he knows the, the blessings that come afterwards when the ark is delivered back to Israel. And yet, what does he do? He goes, he goes of all places to this God, to this city, to this place. All right, what do we see here? Idolatry. Idolatry is irrational, it is foolish. It is blind. Now, why, 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 why do people still run after idols? All right. It is not because we are naive. It's not because we're ignorant. It's, it's not because we're dumb. It's because we are, we are blind. It's because we are hard-hearted because we are deceived. That we cannot understand the foolishness and the sin in our hearts draws us to, to idolatry. All right. So what, when you look out, when you look out in the world and you see people running after idols, are they foolish? Yes. But they're not foolish because they, they just don't understand. Why don't they get it? It's because they... They're being blinded by their sin. They cannot resist it. And we have to recognize that, yes, yes, they go after these wells that are dry when they're thirsty. But so do we. That we can be just as foolish. Now, what does this look like in, in our lives, the foolishness of idolatry? Right? I've heard some of you talk about your, this, this pattern that you go through with God, uh, and I go through the same thing. Like, there's this time where you realize that like, you desperately need God. And so in your weakness and your, your humility, you're, you're praying and you're pursuing him, but then you start to feel a little better. And you think, well, maybe, maybe I'm strong enough to do it without him. And so that stuff starts to drop off, and all of a sudden we realize that, no, we're, we're falling back into sin and hopelessness and and we realized, oh, we, we jumped back into idolatry because, no, we, we thought we were fine now. And we go through this pattern again and again and again, just foolishness, not recognizing how much we need God and, and how desperate we are for him. We see the patterns of addiction. These things that we're, we're running after to give us life, knowing in our heart of hearts that they are killing us. And the, the most tragic pattern is to, to, seek the, to seek the drug of choice, whatever it may be, because that drug is ruining our lives and we're sad about it. 
And so we pursue it more, and then it, it ruins our lives, and we go in the cycle of foolishness and death. Or we deceive ourselves, and we say, you know what, this, this is not an idol. This is a, a generally good and okay thing. When the people in our lives can see that it is idolatrous, they can see that it's unhealthy for us, and as much as we try to tell them and they, they try to tell us, right, we are fools and we do not see. Why are you going to Ekron? It's fine. It's fine. I can go to Ekron if I want to. All right. Have you seen your idols lose their flavor, lose their joy, that they promise life and have give you no, given you nothing in return? It's time to look for something better. It's time to admit our foolishness and turn. Right. Now, uh, it goes further. It goes further for Ahaziah. It's not just foolishness. All right. Ahaziah, he turns and he seeks Baalzebub. Baalzebub. All right, so this, uh, this is a little odd. This is a bit of Bible sarcasm. This is a very sarcastic passage in general. Uh, but, oh wait, this is probably not the, what this god was named. He was probably called Beelzebul, which means the, the Lord of Princes. All right, that's a nice name. The Lord of Princes, Beelzebul. All right, but who does, who does King Ahaziah ask for? Beelzebub, which is the Lord of the Flies. Okay, he's, he's, he's traded these two. He's, it, it was this, but then when he asked for it, it's, it's the Lord of the Flies. Now, you'd understand why he might seek out the, the Lord of Princes. After all, he is, he is the king. He is a prince descended from a line of kings. You think, okay, yeah, I, I want to seek out that God. He sounds great. But what does he get instead? He gets not a Lord for him of, of a prince, a Lord of Flies. And there's in this, there's this message of, all right, you think, you think this is a, a God for princes. No, this is a God for flies. And you will become a Lord of the Flies when you are perishing on your deathbed and the worms start to eat you. You will be that. Not a prince. You will be a Lord of the Flies. And there's this picture that, that Scripture reinforces again and again and again. Uh, you become what you worship. You become what, we, what you worship. If you worship the Lord of Princes, the, you think you're worshiping the Lord of Princes and you're going to become a prince. You're really worshiping the Lord of Flies and you're going to become a Lord of the Flies. Now, what does this look like? How do we become what we worship? All right, those who worship the vain gods of people-pleasing and the world of, of fashion and status. And what do they become? They become superficial and irrelevant just as, as, as vain and fleeting as the gods that they worship. 
When we worship money, we become ruthless and we become cold. That the numbers give us value and suddenly that's the only thing that we see. All right, we become as hollow and as flat as the things we love on our screens. We become just as two-dimensional. When we love legalism and asceticism, what do we become? We become judgmental. We become rule-bound. And we become rules for other people. When we worship comfort, we, be, we descend into sloth and into listlessness. We become. We become our idols. And so I ask you, okay, what have you become? What have you been transformed into? What have you been staring at and loving and beholding? And how has it changed you? Do you like what you've become? Do you see what you've become? What we have become? Now, what is God's response here? All right. So, Elijah intercepts the message with a message of his own. Once again, sarcasm. Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed in which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. All right, what is he asking? He's saying, You couldn't find a God in Israel? You really didn't think there was anyone to ask, no one to consult. No one who had power over illness and resurrection, over life and death. And just to, to add to the sting and the sarcasm of it, what proves, what proves that Ahaziah actually did know, right? He hears, he hears about the person they talked to, like, what was he wearing? And he instantly knows who it is. He knows about Elijah the Tishbite. This is not a surprise to him. He knows that there's someone he could have consulted. He knows that, that God is present in Israel. He watched his father and mother battle with Elijah and destroy the prophets of Baal. The, the thought is maybe even that he had to go to the Baal of Ekron because there weren't any more in Israel. That Elijah had wiped them out, and he, but so desperate he kept looking. He had actively chosen between the God of Israel, Yahweh, and this broken idol. And he had chosen the idol. Now, it's always helpful when talking about idolatry to use secondary tests. It's really hard to just look at someone and be like, what is your idol? We usually don't know. But a better question is, when you find yourself down and out, when fear and sorrow takes hold, where do you go for comfort? Where do you run to for support? Where do you seek refuge? What do you escape into? Right? Those are your functional gods. We may not say that those are the gods that we worship, but our actions are revealing our real faith. And they reveal that oftentimes they are idols, not the one true God. 
They are foolish. And they are deforming us into their images. All right. So what is my reminder for you? All right. Do you have a comforter to run to? You have the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. Who sends us the comforter. Who promises to to transform us. To use all things for the good of those who love him. Who has comfort that that the world cannot offer. Life from out of death. Who can redeem all things and has redeemed all things. Do you have a refuge? A refuge and a shelter to seek in sorrow and in death. Yes. The Lord is our, shepherd, our, our shelter. He's our fortress. He's our strong tower. It speaks of the, the wing. That he, he covers us to comfort us and protect us. Gentle and affectionate. Do you have a source of joy and happiness? In your presence is joy forevermore. At God's right hand are pleasures, endless. That in him and with him, he he is the source of all joy and, and comfort and peace. We can delight in him. Do you need to go looking for a helper? No, we have been given a helper He is our present help in time of need. We have a high priest who is gentle and lowly and who invites us into his presence, not with judgment, but with the compassion of knowing weakness and struggle. Do you need to go looking for a God of life and love and forgiveness? No. Do you need, do you need someone to come into your midst? No, he's already there. And so I encourage you, go to him. Admit your idolatry, admit your failure to worship, and go to him. Choose him. Choose the the real God over idolatry. All right. Does Ahaziah do that? No, he does not. What does he do? He doubles down, and in, in response to this curse, he tries to escape it. He tries to escape the judgment by, of all things, destroying the messenger. Destroying the man of God. So then the king sent to him, the king sent to Elijah, a captain of 50 men with his 50. And he went up to Elijah, who was on top, sitting on the top of a mountain, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. All right. Ahaziah demands... Elijah's presence, the man of God. Why? Presumably so he can kill him. That's, that's more or less what is implied here. Uh, his mother tried to do the same thing when she was confronted with her idolatry. And so we have this story, a story of, of competing messengers. One is the messenger of God coming to, to bring the curse and the, the messenger of the king coming to bring his own judgment and curse. We have two powers. The power of God 
and the power of the king. And throughout these stories, we see the, the battle between idols and gods, between king and God. And the question is, all right, who, who will be defeated? Who will be destroyed? Who will stand up in this battle? Verse 10. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. All right. We have seen battles before. We have seen the battle between Baal and God, the altars. Which one would send down fire? Once again, we have another battle. And it says, says who, will, who will protect their prophet? Who will protect their messenger? And God makes all too clear who is powerful, whose judgment will stand, whose curse is the real curse. Who, who can bring life and death? Ahaziah thinks he has control over these things. And he is silenced. You would think. But verse 11. And again, the king sent him another captain of 50, with men with his 50, and he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. All right, we're not more humble. We are less humble this time. Uh, we've thrown in the king's order and quickly, but Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. But the and the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. All right, Ahaziah does not submit. He doesn't see the error of ways. He doesn't see that he's messing with the wrong person and the wrong God. Once again, he... He seeks to, to escape from his idolatry with more sin, with murder, with throwing around his power. And what does it get him? It gets just more judgment. It gets fire and it gets wrath. Right? He tries to shoot the messenger, thinking that maybe if he can hide from his idolatry, if he can destroy the one who is accusing him and cursing him, then he'd escape the curse and the judgment. All right, he gets exactly the opposite. He gets the, the vengeance, the fire, the wrath of God. All right. This is not how you escape a charge of idolatry. All right, question for us. How do you respond when you are charged with idolatry? When those things are put before you, I think the most common response is, what do we do? We try to kill the messenger. Or maybe we destroy the book that it comes from. We stop reading our Bibles, or we, we run from the Word of God. Maybe in, in a, when we are accused, what do we do? We turn it around and, and throw it back on our accuser. How dare, how dare you say this to me? How dare you? Surely you have idols. Let's look at yours. The people that we love, our, our family, are probably the ones who are going to see this the most. And what do we do? We, we attack them and we get angry or we get defensive. All right. What is, like, in, in counseling, 
we talk about fighting a lot. What is the point of fighting? It's to reveal your idols. That's just what it is. That's what happens. Every time you fight, you're fighting over not yourself. You're fighting over idols. When, when we fight, how do you respond? When these things are, are revealed to you, I know in our, in our expressed theology, we say, yes, I'm full of sin. And yes, I, I have lots of idols. Until someone points them out, then suddenly we don't have any more. Right? It's not like, no, you have all of them, and I'm right. And All right, you're probably a sinner. You, most of us are. <laughs> you probably have idols. You're probably blind to them. The people who are close to you probably see them and know them. And when you're yelling at someone, it's probably revealing itself. Right? The, the worst thing is when our idols are revealed, when instead of shaking our fist at the messenger themselves, we face, shake our fist at God. And we hate him for it. And we say, how, how dare you attack my idol? Why don't you give me good things? Why don't you give me the happiness that you promise? All right. This is not, this is not how we, this is not how we deal with idolatry. We will find only the wrath of God. We will find only fire and judgment. We cannot escape with more wrath. And so instead, uh, we're not going to find a good example in Ahaziah. Instead, we find it in this unlikely picture of the gospel in one of the captains submitting to God's messenger in humility. And we find this, this picture of grace. Verse 13. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. Then the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his feet before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of the 50 men with their 50s. And now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Again, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, it is, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of this word? Therefore, you shall not come down from your bed in which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he had died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? All right. So we see two men. You see two men interacting with uh, the man of God, the messenger of God. All right. One has to hear that judgment yet again. And he refuses to repent. He refuses to do anything true about it. And the Lord is true to his word. He is destroyed 
for his idolatry. And we see the other. We see the other and he, he watches those who go before him. And he has seen the fires of judgment. And he has seen that he is not special. That he cannot escape idolatry simply by, by a show of power. And so what does he do? He, he refuses to li- deliver the king's message. He refuses to align himself with other idolaters to, to submit to the king. He submits to God and he begs for mercy. He gets down on his knees and begs that the man of God would, would give him life. All right. And that man, that man, not the other, is saved. All right, so we have a picture of the gospel. All right, so let's, let's, let's figure out, okay, so what are we supposed to do with this story? Every story is supposed to point to Jesus. So how do we get there from here? Uh, all right. Jesus is the better Elijah. Now, he's not completely different from Elijah, but he's better. All right, so Jesus, Jesus, he says that he is, he's one who baptizes with fire. All right, it's not that Jesus isn't that. He talks about fiery judgments. He talks about the the warnings about the the fire that is to come. He, He warned of it more than any other. But he has a second he has a second baptism. He has a second judgment. He has a second way of dealing with idolatry and with sin. Baptism by the Holy Spirit. Something Elijah could not offer. But something that, that Jesus can. And during his life on earth, Jesus spent his time establishing that second option. A baptism by the Holy Spirit a means of cleansing idolatry and forgiving idolatry and removing idolatry. And so, when the opportunity comes for fiery judgment, what does Jesus do? He he defers it. He says, no, no, this is not the time for that yet. Luke 9, 52. We we all love this passage because it's weird. Uh, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Remember, we were in Samaria just now uh, to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he, Jesus, turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. All right, why? It is not because Jesus is nicer than Elijah or nicer than God the Father. It is not because Jesus doesn't believe that sinners deserve to, to have fire consume them. He does, it's not because he doesn't believe in judgment or he doesn't think the Samaritans have done anything wrong. No, it's because he, he has to make... In, in his time on earth, he has to open that second door. 
that, yeah, the, the way of, of fiery judgment has always been open. But his job on earth was to open a second way. Forgiveness and cleansing and freedom from idolatry. And so he would spend his life as a messenger of God. He'd proclaim these very same messages, the message of repentance. But when the soldiers came for Jesus, he did not tell fire to rain down from heaven. He didn't send legions of, he- of angels to come and, and destroy them. He could have. No, they came for Jesus because he had revealed their idolatry. He had called out their legalism. He had called out their hypocrisy. He had called out that they were not truly righteous, and they came to destroy him. But this time, this time Jesus would submit. And he'd be led away like a, a sheep to the slaughter. And instead of consuming the idolaters, what does he do? On the cross, he lets the, the fire of the wrath of God consume him. That the judgment falls upon him. So that, so that idolaters could be forgiven so that he could be their sacrifice, he could be their vicarious judgment, so the wrath of God could fall upon him instead of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism by the Holy Spirit, cleansing, forgiveness, mercy, grace, and love. A better Elijah. And so we have this, this solution to idolatry. All right, you cannot, you cannot just cast out idols and become an empty person. You will always have to worship something. You will always give your life to something. And we like to do idol swapping, right? We have this circulation. We, we trade idols with each other and, and find uh, more productive idols or idols that uh, are less offensive what is the only solution? The only solution is you find, you find something real to worship and you fall in love with someone who actually gives you life and we give our lives to him. You replace your idol with Jesus Christ. And on the cross, he, he, proved, he proved himself as a good God as a God who seeks life for his people, even unto death for himself, who will suffer and who will bear judgment and who will, who will take on the burdens of his people, who will love us un- even unto his death, but who has such life in himself that he can give you life, his own resurrection life. So we have two options. We can fall on our knees before the man of God and beg, beg for life out of mercy and grace and faith. 
or we can destroy, seek to destroy the man of God. We continue to shake our fists, run from our idolatry, and the fire of heaven can fall upon us. We don't have to face the wrath and fire and judgment of God. Jesus can face it for us. Let us go to him. Let us worship him and love him and choose him. When trial comes, let's actually go to him and pray and seek his help. Trust him to see us through it. Ask him what will happen. Go to the God that's in our midst. We have no reason to go to another. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have proven yourself time and time again. You are powerful, and we thank you that you are not just powerful. You are loving, and you're gracious, and you're merciful, proven by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, Father, we we desperately pray, would you root out our idolatry? Would you destroy our foolishness? Would you uncover our blindness? Would you give us the humility and the just the dependence that we need to call upon you and seek life in you? Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, if there are any who are, have not put their faith in Christ, Lord, who are still under the, the wrath and fire, Father, I ask that they would put their faith in Jesus, they would run to him and beg for life, and trust that you will forgive in him. Lord, would we love Jesus? Would that love root out our idolatry? And would we find great life in him, we pray in Christ's name.